Hi, and welcome to Forest of the Future, a podcast series where we talk about what is evolving in FSE and what innovations are underway in FSE. Today, we're going to return to the topic of biodiversity and how we might use new methods to monitor the health of biodiversity in certified and non-certified forests. Why? Well, because FSC has embarked on complementing our standards with a robust monitoring and evaluation system to prove the benefits of certifications on forest ecosystems. Proof that can be aggregated and is data-driven and proof that can be collected at scale in many different certified forest areas. More specifically, we are looking into using technologies such as eDNA and bioacoustics to determine forest health and to evaluate biodiversity within forest concessions. I find this insanely intriguing and I've asked the scientists working on projects to tell me much more and luckily they said yes. So help me welcome Frank Trolliet, who's the program manager for monitoring and evaluation at FSC. Rodolphe Metenier, who's the project director of Terrera, and Vincent Pri, who's the project director at Spygen. Now this might get nerdy, it might get technical, so buckle up, because I promise you it will also be a very interesting conversation. Hi Frank, welcome back. We've uh, talked about eDNA before. Back then you were just finished collecting data, so if Listeners are interested in all of the setup, etc. They can go back to episode 51 and hear that. But can we just start out by you giving us a quick recap of what we did as a pilot? We need to understand this project as part of the monitoring and evaluation uh, system and strategy. In that program, what we do is to collect data to learn about the outcomes and the impacts of FSE certification on the ground. So really looking at many different topics across the planet, looking at uh, what's happening on the ground in the forest. Part of that involves impact evaluations, which is really trying to understand how exactly FSE certification influences social and environmental aspects in the forest. And usually we do uh, send researchers and consultants or local technical experts to do such data collection and analysis. So two years ago, or a bit more now, we decided to do such impact evaluation in Gabon to look at the effects of certification on biodiversity and its conservation. So there are different ways to do that. A classical one is to send researchers to collect data in the forest, spending weeks and sometimes months to collect data that is difficult to collect. And then we do some analysis and so on. We could have done that, but it's something that is very complex and and time consuming to implement. And I was really trying to find a way to be able to achieve that objective, but also to learn something new for the FSE system, something we could really build on in the future and that is to replicate, hopefully, such impact evaluation across many countries. Before, as an ecologist, I heard about this approach, this methodology called environmental DNA, which is something very interesting with lots of potential for FSC, I believe. And I thought, let's try it. Let's do a pilot to see what it gives, what are the advantages, the limitations, so we can really see how and when we could integrate that approach into the FSC system more thoroughly and scale it up. 
So we did a pilot in Gabon with two objectives. One was to really understand the effects of certification on biodiversity. And the other one was to uh, see the potential of that um, eDNA methodology or biotechnology, let's call it like that. So you're doing this study to assess biodiversity and you're using eDNA. We will dive much deeper into that in a second. But for those who have not listened to episode 51 and therefore don't know what eDNA is compared to traditional methods, can you just give like two sentence explanation and then we'll let Vincent do the full explanation later on. But put it in a nutshell for us. How do you do eDNA compared to traditional sampling or traditional data collection? Every species in the environment Trees, mammals, birds, fishes leave DNA traces in the environment through hair, defecation, uh, feathers, all of that. eDNA is a kind of genetic landscape and the biotechnology is about sampling the environment, usually water, to detect those DNA traces. And then we can, to some extent, detect the presence of all those species that have left traces. And how would you traditionally? Well, first, we, we need to define the taxa. We need to define the target species or a range of species. For example, you will not sample forest elephants in the same way as you would sample butterflies and fishes. So you need to kind of focus on what you want to monitor. Then you will need to define your methodology. And usually, I mean, the classics are transect uh, sampling, which is something we do often in, in the forest and tropical forest. This is about cutting a, a line through the forest and observe everything we see, large animals usually. Then we have uh, quadrats, which is about setting squares in on the forest floor to see everything we detect and uh, identify in those squares. So it's really about sampling the environment and doing some intensive manual identification, observing, collecting, and uh, identifying. So I can see why that would be really time-consuming compared to just sampling some water. Rodolphe, I'd, I'd like to pull you in because you were, you were part of the, the design of what it is that we actually then did. Can you just tell us a bit about how did we identify the local forest that we wanted to collaborate with and can you tell us a bit more about what it is that you do at Terra? And- Terra is a consultancy based in, uh, in France with uh, five offices. So one office is in Marseille, another one is in Cameroon in, uh, in Yaoundé, another one in uh, Ivory Coast, Abidjan, another one in uh, Argentina, in Salta, in, uh, and one in, uh, in Gabon. How so we designed the project, so we discussed a lot with, uh, with Frank and uh, and Vincent to, to design how we can not take pilots in Gabon. The strategy was to uh, notify a different zone with FSC company and non-FSC company in the same area. Uh, try to find watershed with the same characteristics in the same area um, in terms of superficie, uh, orientation, landscape. And uh, and then I'll proceed to the to the sampling. Uh, one important thing for this pilot was to find a watershed uh, have been exploiting the urn the same period of time. Mm. So that means finding a watershed where there'd been management in the forest area around the same time. Exactly. So Vincent, 
You seem to be one of the pioneers in the field of, of eDNA and using that to map biodiversity. Can you explain to us a bit about why eDNA is about the method for mapping biodiversity, if it is a better method? Well, it is uh, to some extent. There are some limits, of course, but the main thing is that you have a better probability of detection for most species, not all of them. It doesn't work very well with reptiles, for example, or crustaceans. For amphibians, mammals, uh, freshwater bivalves, fish, this works very, very well. So it's a very efficient method. We have like 95% detection probability for um, amphibian frog, fish, and mussels. works very well for that. What we've learned in the last few years is that it works also very well for land mammals, which was unexpected. Because even for some Uh species that never go to the water, neither for bathing or drinking, we got them very well. So this is the first reason. And the second one, of course, is money. It's uh, very cost efficient. Anyone can do it. You just need a small training of a couple of hours to be able to sample on the ground. And um, so, so you can train anyone. It can be done online. And then anyone can do the, the training. Of course, the lab work is a lot more demanding. But then it can be deployed quite easily in, in, in very different conditions. The limits we have, maybe if I can talk a bit about that now, is uh, reference databases, because we will get small DNA fragments, and we have to match them with known fragments. So if you know what's the genetic code of a frog, for example, then you will see that your fro- small fragment matches this species, and, and then you, 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 can, you can tell the species there. But for, especially in tropical areas, we are missing a lot of reference databases. And this makes the work a bit difficult. And the mm-hmm. other limitation is we don't have an idea of a quantity. While we can, we have kind of proxies. We can have semi-quantitative analysis, but it's always a number of DNA strand per liter. And this doesn't perfectly match the number of specimen or the biomass you have in the environment. It's a proxy. It's not magic. I mean, there are some limits. Mm-hmm. Okay, interesting. So you're saying that, first of all, all you can detect that Yes, this species, this type of animal is there, for example, but you can't say how many of them are there in the area. And second of all, you might find DNA where you say, well, we know that there is a species that's within this family of species. So it might be a frog. We can see that, but we don't know which specific one because we don't have a full inventory of the DNA of all the frogs in an area. Is that correct? Exactly. Good. Oh, I'm learning. So I'm, (laughs) I'm curious, why is reptiles difficult? We don't know. It's, it's hard to, to say. We have hypotheses. Well, if you think about fish or freshwater bivalves, uh-huh. they have gills. Gills is a huge surface of exchange, and then they probably lose a lot of cells from the gills. So that's, that's big, mm-hmm. and this could be one of the reasons. But then it works very well for amphibians too, and they don't have gills. Mm-hmm. So maybe the mucus has something to do with that. The mucus probably preserves DNA somehow, and this is something we, we get very well. And reptiles don't have mucus, and crustaceans neither. So this could be the reason, but these are only hypotheses. Very interesting. So can you just, for the ones of us who has never sampled eDNA and is only scratching the surface, what is it that you actually do? For sampling? Yeah. Well, there are several processes. It's all based on the differences relies on the quantity of water you want to pump out of the environment. Mm-hmm. So you can have very simple uh, processes with a, ser- a syringe and a very small filter, like two square centimeters, and you will get DNA from that. But then you will probably get only the most common species. If you want mm-hmm. to target a rare or, or yeah, a rare species, you have to sample a lot more of water. So this is what we do. 
we use filters the size of a cup, and this allows you to pump 30 liters of water. So you filter the water, then you take it off, put a buffer in it to preserve DNA, and send it to the lab. You're doing this in tropical regions and and forests under really harsh conditions, sometimes a lot of rain, sometimes a lot of sun, heat, humidity, etc. How fragile are these samples once you've pumped them up in there in your, your filter? The filter is encapsulated in a plastic kind of bottle. So this is completely DNA-free. So in the field, you will have a, a plastic bag, you tear it off, and then you, you filter through that. You put the buffer and, and put two, two lids on, 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 the, on the filter, and that's it. Then it can be mm-hmm. preserved at room temperature. So it's okay. quite easy. So is there anything that you learned from this pilot that you didn't know already? Yes. It was confirmed, for example, that we are very good for uh, monkeys and amphibians. We kind of knew that a bit, but it confirms it. In tropical areas, we are very good for monkeys. We have 17 species of amphibians. Only seven of them could be identified to the species level. The other ones, we know they are species, but we don't know what it is. Either uh, undescribed species or species for which there is no uh, reference uh, libraries. We were very good in rare and elusive species, such as the Potamogale velox, which is looks like a very tiny otter mm-hmm. uh, that people very rarely see. We saw it, we, we collected DNA of, of this species. And Zencarella uh, incidnis is a squirrel. And mm-hmm. this squirrel was not known from this part of Gabun, but it has, it's, it's been seen by scientists only twice, I think. Oh. So so this is a really, really rare species in, in tropical areas. And, and we got it there. So, so th- this was really good. But what we really learned is about the bioindicators. That was very surprising. We, we would expect charismatic species, chimpanzees or monkeys and or leopards, to be an indicator of the management of the forest. It's not. It's mm-hmm. not. These species can cope with um, apparently very, very different uh, managements. But the real bioindicators were gastrotrichia, termites, and mushrooms. Well, okay. this is what comes out of the statistics. We don't know why. They are all decomposer. This is the, the thing. But uh, we don't know why those small species, completely overlooked by, um, by everyone, seem to be the drivers of the management differences. And, and this was really unexpected. Something that could have been expected, but it's still nice to show it, is that we have three times more eDNA of hunted species in FSC's forest than in non-FSC's. To have it so obviously, out of the results of eDNA was not expected. Okay, so it is an indicator that the biodiversity in the FSC certified concession was in a better state, in a better health. There was more animals than in the non-certified concession. Yeah, because it works with mammals, it works with birds, it works with fish, it works with everything, every taxon. Mm, interesting. So definitely there is something. And I'm just curious about this limitation of, of missing the reference sample and therefore not being able to potentially identify every single last DNA string that you find. How would we get past that hurdle? Is that a question of sampling a lot in the traditional methods and then making these uh, reference databases? Or how, how do we cross that bridge? Well, we have to do that, definitely. We have to, to sample with traditional methods and uh, what we call barcodes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the amplify the, the, the genes of, of the species that are well identified. And then we, we improve the reference libraries. But when you don't have that, you can cope with it by doing some phylogenies. And your short fragment will be within a tree where other species are known. Mm-hmm. 
And if it clusters here, you know, it's it, you, you can go to the genus or the family level. So this is one thing you can do. You can also work with uh, SP1, SP2, FP3, and that's diversity. Okay. That's genetic di- diversity, whatever it is. Uh, you, you can also work with that without knowing what species it is actually. Okay. So what is SP2, SP1? Three SP three. Well, uh, species one, species okay. two, okay. species three. Okay, so you, you know, just list them. You don't them. have to have a name. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you don't have to know exactly what it is, as long as you know what family or what genus at least it is. Uh-huh. Is it a frog? Is it a bird? Is it a bat? Is it? A... But then you can work on on genetic diversity, just like for acoustics, for example. Mm-hmm. You can work on on different uh, sounds mm-hmm. without knowing exactly who's doing that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a bird. You know, it's a bat. You know, it's a, a, mm-hmm. a squirrel. Um, and that can be enough to work on uh, acoustic landscapes. And we're working on, on genetic landscapes. Doesn't it make you curious when you stumble upon a fragment that you don't know what is? How do you know whether you find a new species? Well, sometimes you do know. <laughs> okay. It happened to me with fresh a lot of mussels. And then you have to go back in the ground with traditional methods, collect them and find the specimen. Mm-hmm. Because for now, you can't describe a species just on a fragment of DNA. You need a holotype, you need a specimen that you are going to leave in a, in a museum. Mm-hmm. But yes, it happens. This is what is really exciting about eDNA, that it collects the whole genetic diversity, mm-hmm. something that you can't do with traditional methods. If you want to sample fish, you are going to sample like five or ten specimens of the same species. Mm-hmm. But then the genetic diversity, to embrace the whole genetic diversity, maybe you would need a thousand. And DNA does that without killing anything. Vincent, I know that this is different because it's in tropical regions, but if we were in temperate forests, let's say in Europe, would you be able to use eDNA to cover the entire range and biodiversity in a forest throughout a year? Or would you have to do that in a specific point in time, like several times over the year, because it's so so much more seasonally dependent? This depends on the taxa. Okay. We generally avoid winter because the, every species is like sleeping mm-hmm. and not moving a lot. And we don't get a lot of uh, DNA. But apart from that, we can try to target the um, breeding season, for example. Mm-hmm. But uh, thinking about fish uh, or mussels, the breeding season may also be the flood season. So you have more DNA because the animals are more active and you have the gametes and, and the juveniles and all that. But on, it's counterbalanced by the amount of water it is diluted in. So it's hard to tell. In temperate uh, areas, we we don't give any advice. You, you can sample whenever you want, and we don't see really differences except for uh, winter. But then recent studies that suggest that if you want to inventory the land mammals, mm-hmm. it's better just after the rain which you can understand because the rain will drain DNA from, from the slope of the river and, and, and drain it into the, the water. So, so this is something you can think about for land, land species to sample just after the rain. Mm-hmm. It's probably more efficient. Mm-hmm. Another follow-up question is, is that, well, we can actually use this to inventory which species you have. And, and you said, well, we actually found a, a small squirrel, I think it was, that we didn't expect was there. Now in FSC, if you have a, an endangered species, a threatened species, you would have to protect the area where it lives. So now with your study, you were able to say, we now know that that's here in this forest area. Can you also somehow say, well, how far away does it live in the forest? Or is that impossible to say based on what you have? Well, we know it doesn't come from very far away. Okay. 
uh, yeah, the, the, the detection distance is thought to be about 10 kilometers maximum for small streams that are flowing fast. But for big streams, there are recent studies showing that it's probably less than that and probably less than a couple of kilometers only. And this is why we use a lot of water, because you can extract DNA from the soil or from the air. Uh, in the case of the soil, it's not diluted enough. And um, thinking about the air, it's the opposite. It's too too much diluted. For example, in Europe, we receive every year pollens from Canada. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's been shown that the detection distance with the air can be up to 300 kilometers, which is too much of large grain size for ecological studies. And this is why we use water mm-hmm. as a matrix, as a preferred matrix. Okay. Oh my God, this is so interesting. I can't help but think though, Spigen. The name of your company that you work for, it sounds like something out of an, a, a, an action movie. What is it that, that you do at SpyGen? I'm in charge of what we call the VigiLife program, which aims at inventorying and monitoring 30 rivers in the world with eDNA, targeting all life, just like we did from bacteria. Mm-hmm. We didn't do the bacteria here in FSC, but for this program, we go from bacteria to big mammals. And I'm in charge of that, developing that. So so we're working in South America and Africa. And I'm also a molecular taxonomist. So I'm I'm doing research and trying to improve the methods and especially the way we identify these sequences that we Mm -hmm. don't know what it is. Mm -hmm. Frank, we have to get back to the the bilate itself and I have to bring you back in. Vincent already did reveal a bit about the results of the pilot. But can you share more? What is it that we see as the results right now? A few of the highlights were also the detection of charismatic species like chimpanzees and gorillas and forest elephants. One could say we could have expected that. It's not a, a big surprise, but it's, it's something we can really highlight because there are threatened species, some of them at least, and charismatic species. So it's in terms of communication, it's also quite good. And people can relate easily to uh, the leopard also, which is much more elusive, much more cryptic, difficult to detect. Then Vincent um, explained that we detected much rarer species like squirrel species. Those are maybe less obvious indicators of um, certified forest management, right? So the what, what applications this can have for monitoring FSC certification is not yet very clear. We need to deep dive a bit more in the results and discuss. But mm-hmm. it is a very good result to, to show, to demonstrate the robustness of the, of the methodology, right? So as a pilot, mm-hmm. I think it's, it's any result showing rare species, cryptic species, um, is, is really interesting to, to show to the world that there is lots of potential. It is cost-effective, yes, but it is also simply effective at doing things for rare and threatened species, right? So from a conservation perspective, it's, it, there is lots of potential. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I guess it has much lower impact on the actual area than some of the traditional sampling methods. The, the sampling itself, the data collection, yes, definitely. Yeah, yeah. 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 It is um, not invasive at all. We are not disturbing the environment. We are not disturbing animal plant communities. That's also a great mm. advantage. 
Yeah. So Rodolf was uh, saying that that they're hoping for a, a second pilot where we expand the scope. Is that something that we're looking into? It is not yet planned because unfortunately or fortunately, we have so many topics and countries to cover. There is definitely a lot of potential in Gabon, in the Congo Basin. Yes, lots of room to do pilot number two, to maybe do a bit more calibration on what species would be really relevant to monitor what habitats how much effort, how much sampling effort is, is required to be able to characterize correctly a certified forest is also a, a mm-hmm. big question it, that would be great to answer. Doing the same study with, I don't know, 10 times as much um, replicates and, and sampling places would be amazing and, and lead to uh, lots, of, lots of important results. It is not yet planned, but who knows, maybe it will come. Mm-hmm. So we've been talking a lot about eDNA, but but Vincent actually also mentioned another method, like really in brief, and I'm, I'm that got me curious. Acoustics, or I think you said bioacoustics. What is that? That allows one to record sounds from animals. So mm-hmm. it's about using small devices uh, recording sounds. We install them in the forest or anywhere, basically in any ecosystem. We switch them on, leave them for a few days, a few weeks, a few months. Then I believe there are different approaches. It can be continual recording. It can be sampling, you know, switching on at times or repetitions. Just like we have uh, genetic landscapes with eDNA, you can get acoustic landscapes and you can categorize the different kind of sounds you have, even if you don't know who's making them or you're not sure. Mm -hmm. Same as eDNA, you can have an idea of who's who. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like this is a rodent, this is a bat, this has to be an insect. But then probably a lot of sounds, especially in tropical forests, you don't know exactly to which species it will belong. Same as eDNA, you can have two species having the same acoustic signal, and you can also have one species with very different signals. Thinking about bats, they have the sound that they make to communicate with one another. Mm -hmm. They have the sound they make, of course, to hunt, and the sound they make to travel from a place to another. Any bat will have those three kinds of sounds. So you had to take that apart. It's still in your acoustic landscapes. If you have all those three, for example, uh-huh. communication, transit, and hunting, mm-hmm. it's of course one species, but it's not the same as if you have only uh, transit. Only transit will mean the bat are only passing by. But the, if they also hunt, it means they feed there. And if they also communicate, it means there's many of them and, and, and they probably live here. So um, this is something I find very interesting. Uh, you, can, you can get rid of the old species concept and just think about functionalities and, and, um, and the acoustic landscape. I love this. I love this term. Mm. Okay. So one of the limitations in eDNA is we don't know anything about the population size. Or we might be able to guesstimate if there's a lot more than there's likely more, but we can't actually say whether it's one dead fish <laughs> floating right there. But it sounds like with the acoustics, we could actually get to a point where we say, well, we know that they communicate there. We know that they make, uh, make hunting sounds. We know that they feed there. So they probably live there. Is that correctly understood yes 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 but still if you have a single bird singing all the time uh, in front of your microphone it's just one individual Mm. and and, well for a bird probably you can see that but for bats it's much more difficult Uh, you have signals of bats hunting around um, a light for example Uh, is it just one staying there all night or is it many many passing by hunting a bit and going away 
and this you can't you can't know it unless you have identif- uh, individual identification mm-hmm. which sometimes you do like uh, people working for penguins with penguins and um, probably some other species I'm not a specialist but sometimes you can have individual identification but probably not most of the time mm. do we, do you know whether we have any limitations here like is it all types of animals that we were able to see like birds insects Bats, mammals, can we hear all of them? When thinking about biodiversity, we always think about birds and mammals. Uh-huh. But um, of course, freshwater mussels will not be very good at singing. <laughs> and um, uh, there's mollusks, which is the second group after the arthropods, will not be good at singing. Mm-hmm. And even a lot of insects do not make any sound at all, probably. Well, this is really interesting. Frank, is this something that we're also looking into using in FSD? Bioacoustics? Not yet, but it might come. I knew about a researcher that did um, such impact evaluation to compare certified and uncertified forests in Latin America using bioacoustics. And we are now collaborating on this eDNA project with um, Susata Borivalova, who is a researcher at the University of Wisconsin, who is actually specialized in bioacoustics. It's great to have her on on board because she can provide this kind of analytical view of what bioacoustics provides, what eDNA provides, and she will have this kind of, you know, comparing the two and, and considering the two for future projects, maybe if to compare and calibrate advantages, disadvantages. So we are exploring how we could develop that. Another topic that is maybe tackling the problem of biodiversity and its monitoring from a different angle is what do we need to monitor as the first big question. So now we've been speaking Mm -hmm. about sampling methodologies, monitoring methodologies. That's the how to monitor. But the big question Mm -hmm. is what do we need to monitor? And that is something Mm -hmm. uh, we we are starting to look in, in, in FSC, also using pilots and the next question is, how do we need to monitor? And there, bioacoustic might be one of the solutions to, to consider. For example, if we detect, if we define one bioindicator species, so one species that we believe to be really important to conserve and monitor, maybe representative of um, healthy ecosystems, if that species is making noise, it might be the, the, the best or cost-effective, uh, the most cost-effective way to do bioacoustic. Mm, interesting. It sounds like another podcast coming up <laughs> once you advance a bit more. I, I can't help but think, and this is probably a question to all three of you, what is the applicability of all of this today? So if I'm a forest owner today and I wanted to use these methods to, to monitor my, my biodiversity in my forest, if I, for example, wanted to have ecosystem services certification of my forest area, if I wanted to have a baseline for what is the forest health in my forest now before I get certified, can I go out and do that today? Vincent, let me start with you. I would say yes, yes, because we have a proof of concept here. In a very difficult uh, forest, uh, once again, we are in tropical forest. This is where most of the biodiversity is. And we've studied very difficult groups, such as insects. It can be applied now, especially for monitoring, where you want to compare from time to time the biodiversity you have in your forest. This eDNA should really reflect um, the changes in the time. What about you then, Rodolphe? Is it feasible for companies to say, well, we actually want to use this today? Yeah, technically it's uh, it's feasible. There is no no big issue with that. The thing is, um, maybe uh, they are under pressure for a lot of things and certified companies specifically. Added new technology is a 
has always a cost, even if it's minor, it has always a cost and it's added to other costs. Today, I think we need to approve the methodology, find a good indicator because uh, today, uh, as Seven Vincent, we, we can have already an idea that it works, but we need to really go deep and uh, improve the robustness of the, of the methodology first. Mm-hmm. Of course. Can you also turn it around? And this is just this is a question, not a speculation from my end. But do you also see a future where this methodology, which is more cost effective than going out and making, is it called transex, and actually mapping with people on the ground, that's a very costly exercise. Do you see this more cost effective way of saying, well, we can actually monitor our biodiversity. We can actually say this is the health of biodiversity in our forest area. And you can use that to potentially attract investors or get better loans or something else that could help on the financial side of the forest management. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Today, uh, even for uh, FSC company or for an FSC company, they have to undertake uh, fully voluntary biodiversity uh, or and water, etc. So, in, in any case, they, they would have to do uh, a classical inventory for the amount. So, eDNA is just added something very minimal uh, investment they have to do for biodiversity for the moment. We need to uh, approve this methodology, find an indicator, and once everything will be. Uh, Fixed, definitely we have to, to use this methodology to, to monitor the, the, the biodiversity. It's a really efficient method. So for the moment, I think we, we, we need to, to, to go further in the, in the research and find the, the pertinent indicator. Mm-hmm. What about you, Frank? Do you see any applicability of this in FSC today? Like, could we do it in other FSC tools such as ecosystem services certification? So my first answer is yes, but it depends what we want to do. Exactly, right? <laughs> so in the case of having that, so just to build on what Rodolfo was explaining, imagine having that as a kind of mandatory methodology as part of the certification process, it's too early. So we need more calibration, mm-hmm. more developments, more clarity on the methodology and what we want to do with it. And then there is this, this important political dimension with it. Now, what are the impacts uh, and risks for, for companies? For the ecosystem services procedure, yes, I believe I cannot pronounce myself too much because it's not my area of expertise, although it's very closely related. Maybe it has been used already. I'm sure there is potential, definitely. It, it all comes down to what we want to do with data, what type mm-hmm. of projects. For impact evaluations, yes as we just did, to confirm the presence of one of a few species? Yes, we did it. It works. If we want to demonstrate improvement over time, it's maybe tricky. It depends. We need good sampling, high number of replicates, good efforts in the fields. There are two things. One is the methodology, eDNA, lots of potential. The other Mm -hmm. thing is what we want to do with it and, and how much, no. To which extent we scale it up in the forest? Do we have one sample sometimes or do we do it, you know, extensive sampling every year? Then there is much more possibilities. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Really interesting. I can't help but think you say, well, it depends what we want to do with the data. And, and you know me, I love to think big. I love to combine big ideas. So uh, I'm going to test an idea on you. Is there an option here where we could say, well, actually, we want to combine a concept of eDNA, bioacoustics, with some of the other big things we have going on, like big data sets that we're building, satellite monitoring uh, through S3 or Planet, or some of the other things that we're doing. Is there an outlook there where we can say, well, actually, we can 
monitor animal tracks through the forest, through planet, and we can combine that with eDNA, and then that gives us an even bigger picture. <laughs> Am I dreaming too big? Um, you're not dreaming too big because, and I'm sure some researchers are working on that, so combining field data with Earth observation tools to basically scale up results across geographies to model. So if you have mm -hmm. empirical data from points A, B, C in your forest, then you use remote sensing and, and as high resolution imagery in the entirety of the forest to generalize your, your data to other places in your forest. That is at the edge of what we can do. That is really state of the art, you know, combination of, of modern technologies. This is research and development. So yes, we can do it. What applications does this have for FSC? I don't think we can really confidently speak about short-term or medium-term concrete applications, right? It's something that is extremely interesting and, and we need to look at, but that's part of the future or something we, yeah, we can lead on for a couple of years and then implement in the system. Well, that's a good thing about this podcast. We get to dream about the future in this podcast. And I, I'm curious, Vincent, when I when I throw concepts like that out there, as one, one who works with eDNA, it sounds like on a daily basis, what do you think? Is that something that would just make your work more complex or would that be of insane value because you can then scale? Of course, it makes your life much more complicated than using just one. Mm -hmm. But then it's more accurate. So no, 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 I, I love that. And I love working in big teams where there are lots of specialists of different things. And then it's also really, it opens, like opening different eyes that you didn't know were, were existing. And um, I don't know, I think it's definitely the, the, the future. eDNA is not the answer for everything. Just combining different methods is probably the, the future. So I'm thinking about the bioacoustics, for example, and, and all the traditional methods. And we still need traditional methods for a while till we have good reference uh, databases. And this will take years. Yeah, I, I, I'm sure that it will. I can't help but think, actually, that was a follow-up question I forgot before. Right now, we're seeing a, a landslide in AI and in machine learning. How is that transforming your fields? I mean, is that really is that impacting your fields as well? Like in terms of how fast can you actually identify different species types and compute results that you get or compute uh, samples that you get from the forest? Yes, this is definitely something that is going to be used. So some people do use it to start using it um, uh, for research programs, but I don't know about anyone who does it uh, as a routine. But one of the difficulties we have in eDNA that we have errors of reading. So some of the sequences, we know we had to, to, to take them off. Uh, amongst the, 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 the many, many sequences that the machine would give us, a lot of them have to be taken off. Mm -hmm. And for now, we are using statistics. There's basically two ways of doing that. I'm not going to go into the details, but we are not very proud of that. We may lose some very weak signal just because we don't know how to differentiate that from an error of, of reading. And, and for this, IA could definitely be 
a, a big help in sorting out the trash from the from the good data. It can also be used for species delimitation. Mm -hmm. When you have a tree with many, many sequences and you have very few uh, sequences, you know what they are, and then you want to make different species. This is what we did for, for this study, for example. Uh, try to sort out. For the amphibian, we had 38 different sequences. Out of these 38 different sequences, we managed to say there are 17 species. We did a lot of statistics for that. 17 species and only seven, we know what they are. 10 of them, we don't know what they are. We know it's frogs. Uh -huh. And uh, because you have this genetic variability within a species. Uh -huh. And when you have this, this bushy tree of sequences, it's hard to say, okay, we cut here and then we have species. And that's intra-specific diversity. That's extra-specific diversity. And IA could probably be um, uh, helping a lot because we're talking about 38 haplotypes here. But uh, for some fish species in, in tropical areas, in big rivers, we have up to 500 haplotypes. Mm -hmm. So what we did with the amphibians on this study, we are not going to be able to do it for 500 haplotypes in a big river. No. And for that, IA is definitely promising. Yeah, yeah, because I guess it could do the pattern recognition for you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Really interesting. Frank, I'd like to go back to the outlook of implementing this into FSC on a potential. And last time we talked about the possibility of saying, well, there's a difference between monitoring each and every certified forest and then doing select monitoring of very specific forest areas and then use these to conclude on the overall impact of FSC. You had some time now, you've done a pilot, you've done a bit more thinking. Where do you stand on this monitoring now? Do you think we will start monitoring every single forest in FSC or do you think we will continue down this path of monitoring key forests? It depends. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, honestly, it, it, it comes down to what data we collect. So there is clearly a trade-off between the scale of uh, the approach, so how many forests you can monitor and the level of details of the data, right? The depths of the, the monitoring you can do. It's easy to have very simple basic data from everyone and do it. For example, we know how many certified forests are out there. We know how big they are, right? The certified area. We got this data from every single certified forest on the planet. That's something that is global, but with very low depths of details. We don't really know anything about no? what's more than that. Then we have a bit more meat to the bone when we come to the audit report data. So every year there is one independent audit to assess whether um, a forest can be certified or not. And this leads to a, a report containing some data. Again, we cannot go to too many levels of details, but yet we have more information about, for example, the proportion of the forest that has been protected for conservation of biodiversity. Oh, so we have a bit more information. We do that at scale also for every single forest, mm -hmm. whenever mm -hmm. it is a um, relevant data point. Now we won't be able anytime soon or maybe never to have long-term, very in-depth data on impacts on all topics for everyone. So we have this trade-off and we have to be strategic and you know play with that trade-off like starting with those basic data, look at patterns, look at trends uh, across scales and then select where do we want to have more information and send researchers, for example, in Gabon to look at certified and uncertified forests. So that will remain and that's the whole logic of the monitoring and evaluation system. 
Now we have something to speak about here is outcome orientation, which is a buzzword to say that what we want, how we want to improve the FSE system is to make a stronger focus on monitoring as part of certification. So to strengthen mm-hmm. monitoring efforts, to be more consistent, to collect more or at least more interesting data on the key topics. So this is about biodiversity, but also other topics. What are the key topics that will no, that really needs to be defined at some scales, maybe international or global scale, maybe at national level, you know, with the local stakeholders. And the challenge is to get as interesting data as possible on biodiversity using regular audit reports and regular certification process. Striking the right and fair balance between what we can ask certificate holders or certified forest managers in terms of cost and burden, as Rodolf explained before, we cannot simply mm-hmm. show up and say, hey, you need to collect data on everything. It's impossible, mm-hmm. right? And it would not be fair because it would mean more costs. Yet we are in a, in a time where society changes and there is increasing demand from society from the market to show data, to demonstrate, to provide evidence, to substantiate any outcomes, any effects of of what we do. We see that very strongly in in Europe with uh, recent legislatives with the EU Green Deal, UDR and TR30 and and the likes. So it's really important for us to move in that that sphere and, and really assess what data are important to collect, and what we want our stakeholders to connect. It's a big, challenging topic, and uh, we start that now. Okay. If this answers your question. It was kind of a politician's answer, but I will, I will follow up in another podcast episode <laughs> in a couple of months' time, and then more. maybe you're more advanced on what do we do with outcome orientation. So for now, I'll leave you off the hook uh, <laughs> and say it's, it's work in development. Vincent and Rodolphe, I can't help but think, do either of you have anything coming up, something exciting, new projects so that's connected to this kind of conversation that you'd like to tell us about? Yes, uh, currently we are doing um, a biodiversity inventory um, in Gabon for a royal company. We collaborate with PyGen to uh, to make some uh, DNA or something. We try to combine the different methodology to have a good overview of the, of the ecosystem health and the sensitiveness of the ecosystem. What about you, Vincent? Do you have anything interesting coming up that you want to share? Yes, um, something very exciting. I'm living in a couple of weeks to Namibia uh-huh. because there they have a Ministry of Inland Fisheries who is monitoring fish every year. Uh-huh. But because the, the water lacks conductivity, they can't do electrofishing. So what they do is use either nets or rotenone, with it, which is a poisonous um, uh, substance that you put in the water and kills everything. Uh-huh. So every year they have 22 sites they survey and basically kill everything. Uh, they, they take all the fish out of the river, measure them, uh, weigh them, and identify them with traditional methods. Of course, they're not very happy with that. And there are, that would be very interesting if they could replace those methods with eDNA, which is more cost-efficient and non-invasive. Mm-hmm. So we are going to do a pilot study where we are going to sample eDNA, try to quantify the, the eDNA we get for each species, and then they will do their big uh, slaughter and we will compare both. And if, if DNA can be a proxy for biomass for all those uh, species, then they will 
just quit their old methods and turn to eDNA. So this is something really exciting because it has real implication for the fish conservation and, uh, and fish monitoring in those places. Mm-hmm. Wow, really exciting. I, I truly, truly hope for those fish and for biodiversity in general that eDNA turns out to be just as effective. So we're, at, we're towards the end of the podcast and, and I have one final question. I always love to end the conversations on big dreams and looking outwards because in this podcast it is allowed to think big and think future. So if I were to ask the three of you to to think ahead and think, well, what happens in the course of, let's say, three years? What will we be able to do with these new ways of monitoring biodiversity, both from a commercial point of view, but also from a researcher perspective? What do you think will happen? Let me start with you, Rodolf. What do you think will happen in the next few years? Uh, as I said previously, I hope this methodology can be a, you know, a proof to be a daily use on the field by the by the, the, the company, by consultancy to, to monitor or assess the environment. We hope we can do this soon. Mm-hmm. What about you, Winston? What do you dream about if you're allowed to dream back in three years? Well, I just hope we will improve the methods and um, be better, not in detection probability, because this is already very good, but in uh, taxonomic reassignment of, of the fra- sequence fragment we get. So I, I'm looking forward to have very good reference databases. Mm-hmm. Uh, going back to this Namibian project, this is also an incredible opportunity to make a very good reference database because all the fish will be identified. We are going to take piece of tissues of them all and sequence them. So then we will be able to match perfectly what we got with eDNA and with uh, the, the reference databases. And I think, yeah, this is what we want in, in the near future. About the improvement of the methods, I really think that quantification will get better and better. For now, we have only presence absence. Mm-hmm. Uh, with this pilot study, we got a step towards quantification mm-hmm. and the results were very good. So I hope we are going to be better and better for that and to have um, yeah, a semi-quantitative analysis of, of the fauna with, uh, with eDNA. And the ultimate step will be to have uh, individual identification, at least for some species. And we're working on that with the rhinos in Namibia. Mm, okay, so let me just see if whether I got that right. So you're hoping that you will be able in three years' time to not only say, is this species present or not in a forest area that you're sampling or in any given biosphere area that you're sampling, but also that you will be more able to say, well, for some species, we can actually say it's this particular animal that we're monitoring, correct? Yeah. Yes, mm. this is something we can do on the paper. Mm-hmm. But there are very, very few convincing studies about that. But I mean, for our species of real conservation concerns, such as yeah, rhino or, or giraffes in, in some places, it would be really relevant to be able to identify them at the individual level. Mm-hmm. Very interesting outlook. Frank, what about you? What do you dream about? Three years. Well, if we're not allowed to dream at longer timescales, three years. Well, you can <laughs> you can dream longer. <laughs> so no, I mean, okay. I, my dream would be to have a, a scientifically agreed monitoring framework for biodiversity that would not be perfect because I think we'll, we will still face debates and challenges on what we should monitor, but to have a good basis of, you know, good agreement on what we need to monitor where, the how, the methodologies will then come naturally, I believe, after that is defined. So whether it is eDNA or something else, let's see. But to have that kind of 
focus and agreement on that type of a habitat, that type of proxy species, indicator, whatever that is, to be able to speak and monitor and, and, and biodiversity and react accordingly, that would be amazing. Do you mean they're inside FSC or do you mean more as a global society? As a global society and then FSC would um, plug into that, maybe specifying a few things based on FSC requirements because we have specific forest management requirements. But there is a great opportunity and a great room for FSC because we have that system with local technical experts developing standards in all countries. And that Mm -hmm. could be part of the process also. Well, thank you, all three of you, for humoring me with all of my insane follow-up questions. I just find this very fascinating. Um, Thank you for taking the time and being patient with explaining to me all the different terminologies. Welcome. Pleasure. Thank you, Loa. That's it. Thank you to Frank, to Vincent and to Rodolphe for answering all of my questions so patiently. I know that this was one of the longer episodes, but I can't help but find this so interesting that I just have to know more. And to my biologists and scientist listeners, I'm sorry for missing those follow-up nerdy technical questions that you wish I would have asked. Feel free to throw them at me and maybe we can convince the three of them to come back on a follow-up episode once all of the pilot results are public and we can dive even deeper into what the research showed. And let's hope that their big dreams come true. That we in three years will have advanced methodologies to tell us much more about the biodiversity health of an area because we can use techniques like these to monitor the size of a population too and combine different methods to get the full picture. That we can do this super cost effectively so we can remove financial burdens from companies if we can. But perhaps most importantly, that we in three years' time have a unified understanding across global communities about what we have to monitor to be able to measure biodiversity health, that we've agreed on keystone indicators and frameworks, and that we on the basis of this can develop the how, the methods, and how often we have to sample. Because then we would truly be able to monitor biodiversity health at scale, And of course, use that to act accordingly to protect areas under pressure and risk. Remember to subscribe to Forest of the Future if you want to get notified of new episodes where we dive deeper into other innovations within FSC in the world of certification and sustainable forest management. You can also always get in touch with me on podcast at fsc.org. I am Laura Worm, and this was Forest for the Future. 